Father, take our hearts and as we just sang, seal them for Thy courts above. Lord, I I pray that You will increase our vision of eternity. That You will draw us forward in our view. You would lift our heads, Lord, out of the din of the busyness of our lives, which can seem so important in the moment. And so our heads go down, Father, instead of up. I pray, Lord, You would give us a vision for eternity. I pray, Father, Your Word would wash over us this morning. We seek and we ask for the oil of Your Spirit to anoint us so that we can hear clearly and again, Lord, have our hearts sealed for Thy courts above. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 John chapter 2. Let's open up our Bibles there. 1 John chapter 2, a section of Scripture that caught my attention. There are other aspects of this chapter that we could teach. We will teach. Uh, we will study on, on Wednesday night. But, but this one was just one of those odd little sections. And as I read it and thought it through, I thought, there's got to be more here. Don't let us skim the surface or just assume this is John writing, so it's John's style. Have you ever done that? You've had a certain, perhaps you're reading in the letters of Paul and you come across a difficult passage, but you think, well, that's just how Paul writes. You know, sentences that go on forever. Or this is just how John writes, these, these curious little phrases that he throws out there. But that's just John. Don't do that. Don't do that. Stop and ask, what, Lord, are you saying to us? John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for His name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Well, that's just John. (laughs) The disciples asked Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus replied, Matthew 13, verse 14, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. In 1 John 1 and 2, The old apostle is talking about how to walk in the light. That is, to have ears that hear, and eyes that perceive, and hearts that understand. To walk with clarity, revelation, with vision, if you will. Walking in the light as he himself is in the light. That's how this whole letter begins. The first, more than the first third of the letter, the first two-fifths of this letter, are all about that idea, walking in the light. In the light. And in our text this morning, what John is doing is painting a potent picture. 
He's drawing up something before us to understand. It's a contrast, really. A contrast of two ways that people try to see where they're going. Now you may have noted in verses 12 through 14, that almost seems like a real standalone section of verses. And then verses 15 through 17, that seems like a standalone. And the two don't even seem necessarily to go together. In fact, if your Bibles are like mine, there's a, there's a gap in between verse 14 and 15. You know, where the, the writers, the translators have, have put a little space and they put a heading in there and that, and that tends to separate the two in our thinking even. And it shouldn't. Because the two go together, again, as a contrast. Two visions for life. One vision is clear and eternal. The other vision is murky and is passing away. And we need vision. To walk in the light as He is in the light is to see clearly now. The rain is gone. Proverbs 28.18 tells us where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained or the people perish. But happy is he who keeps the law. I want to ask you all, did you enjoy the unhealthy haze last week? It's back. That smoky haze that descended all over western and eastern Washington. Cheryl and I headed out to Leavenworth uh, for a nice time, uh, you know, to enjoy our anniversary together. And, and it was warm and relaxing and smoky. <laughs> Hot. <laughs> you could just smell the ash in the air. Wildfires across B.C., if you're not already aware of this. Uh, and wildfires in eastern Washington as well sent this eerie smog, if you will, over the state. I haven't seen this since I grew up in Southern California. <laughs> and we drove back from Leavenworth thinking, well, we're going to get out of this and the, the air is going to start to clear as we come up over the pass and we, and we come down into, into western Washington and it just never got clearer. I'm, I'm looking at the weather app when we stopped the car, not while I was driving, but looking at the weather app and just, it, it's saying that this is going to remain a couple of days and hopefully clear up on Saturday. I got up yesterday morning and looked at the weather app again. It's back, baby. It's supposed to be cloudy, smoggy, smoky again through tomorrow night. Haze, smog, smoke, there is a condition that can settle in like a smoky haze. It's a condition that dulls the eyes, it clouds the vision, it causes one to hate a brother and to walk in darkness. Ultimately, it's a darkness then that brings about utter blindness. And John describes it right here before us. He calls this haze, if you will, he calls it love of the world and the things of the world. The love of the world and the things of the world cause you to walk in darkness. If you would walk in the light as He Himself is the light, you cannot love the world. If you want a clear vision, that is, all the way to eternity, walk in the light as Jesus Himself is in the light. What does that have to do with this curious little section of little children and fathers and young men? And who is John talking to? In verse 12, John is continuing this line of thought, of walking in the light, of of clear thinking, of of vision, again, unto eternity. A teaching that is built on, actually, affirmations, which is kind of cool. John uses affirmations for the church, for the churches, 
that will increase vision. You know, commendations for the church to cheer us on. And it's a good way to look at this. He starts by applauding three types of believers. If you look there again in verse 12, I am writing to you little children. And then in verse 13, I am writing to you fathers. And again in verse 13, the latter part, I am writing to you young men. Little children, fathers, young men. What if I'm none of these? Some of you may be thinking, well, that's not speaking to me because I'm not a little child, I'm not a father, I'm not a young man. Young women, wives, mothers, older men, people with no children, should I just skip ahead and wait for you all when you get to verse 15? Should I just, you know, this doesn't really apply to me because clearly it's to the little children, the young men and and the fathers. Hey, stay right here. And tune in closely. This is not a father-son retreat. Okay, this is not a, a men's breakfast devotional. What John is writing here to children, young men, and fathers is to the church. It is to all of us together. And, and I'll explain, there is much more to this than simply little children, young men, and fathers being addressed. Some think John is implying a growth pattern of spiritual maturity. That that's what's going on. I'm writing to you, little children. We start as little children, and then, and then we become young men, and then we become fathers. The problem is it's all out of order because he says little children, fathers, and then young men. Well, that's not, that's not a right order. Well, maybe John just wasn't thinking. Look, the Holy Spirit is intentional. Always intentional in the writing of Scripture. Nothing gets by the Lord. So if the order is little children, fathers, and young men, that's on purpose. He's saying something else here. Besides the fact of it being out of order, if it's just supposed to be about spiritual maturity, based on the affirmations that John gives here, who can say which condition is more mature? That is, having sins forgiven, does that mean that you're more mature? Or knowing Him who has been from the beginning, does that, is that what makes you more mature than someone who has their sins forgiven? Or perhaps someone who's overcome the evil one, are they more mature than someone who's had their sins forgiven? Or someone who knows Him? I think all three conditions are for all of us all the time. My sins have been forgiven. I know Him who has been from the beginning. I've overcome the evil one. All of this together is for all of us Together, and I believe John is talking to the whole church, and he's using little children, fathers, and young men as pictures in type of our spiritual life. That is all of us. And they are pictures of what it looks like to walk in the light as he is in the light. Follow this through with me. Children, what he begins with, little children, is the largest category. That's the overarching category. It encompasses literally all of us. And then the next two, fathers and young men, are subcategories of the children. So we're all children. Therefore, fathers and young men will also apply to all of us. I'll explain as we go if you're already going, what? He says, verse 12, I am writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. Little children is technia. To get technical, it's technia in the Greek. It's often considered in the scriptures and used as a term 
of endearment. Now, it can speak of and mean little children. But it's often a term of endearment as well. John uses it that way. We see this throughout the New Testament that way. My daughters are still my little girls. Now, my daughters are 13, 20, and 26. But they will always be my little girls. I still call Hannah little girl when I see her. She has two babies of her own, my grandkids. (laughs) Silas and Ethan. She has two sons, but she is my little girl. She always will be, and she knows it. Little children, again, is a term of endearment. It's used by teachers to their disciples. Paul used it for Timothy. Called him his little child in the faith. He used it for Titus. He used it for Onesimus when he writes that little letter to Philemon. All three of these Paul refers to as his little children. John uses the phrase little children nine times in this letter alone, always of the church. He's always talking to the church. I'm writing to you little children. And as a matter of fact, if he didn't follow this with fathers and young men, we would just assume he's talking to the church. We would know he's talking to all of us as the church. Little children. John uses it for the first time in chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The last time John uses it is at the very end of the letter, chapter 5, verse 21, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. It is a term of endearment. Little children. And Jesus used it with His own disciples. He said in John 13.33, Little children, I am with you a little longer. That was on the night of His betrayal. You might think a little longer, well, He's about to be crucified. Yeah, well, He would be with them 40 days after that as well. After resurrecting. Little children, Jesus said. Little children, John said. Now, in verse 13... John uses another word as he repeats himself, I am writing to you. He says, now I have written to you children because you know the Father. So he uses another word there. It's not technia, little children. It's paideia, which is just children. They're synonyms. And Jesus used that one for his followers as well. In uh, Matthew 18.3, he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like paideia, children... You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We have to be children if we are to be followers of Jesus. In Matthew 19, verse 13, some children were brought to Him so that He might lay His hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to Me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. I'll tell you what. Rick's opinion. We will be judged as a fellowship based on how we invite the children. Let the children come to me, Jesus said. Children matter to Jesus. And again, He says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, not meaning just little kids will be in the kingdom of heaven, but meaning that that needs to be our heart, our attitude, our behavior, like little children. And trusting. Following. Believing. So... In both 12 and 13, when he says little children, when he says children, he's talking about the entirety of the body of Christ. He's talking about the family of children. So we're going to use that word. Just outline-wise, let's just use the word family. 
Because we are children in the family, and that's what he's affirming. And by the way, one other thing, in verses 12 and 13, when he uses the word little children or children, both words are in the neuter form. They are neither male nor female, which is unusual. Typically in the Greek, you'd have the male form. If he's talking about little boys, he would say the male form. If he's talking about little girls, he'd say the female form, but he doesn't. It's the neuter form of the word little children. What does that mean? All of us. Men and women combined. So ladies, you're not off the hook in verses 12 through 14. You're part of the deal. Little children. This category is the family. Family. And speaking of the family, again, he says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. Peter said in Acts 4.20, There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. John writes there in 1 John chapter 3, over in verse 23, This is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son Jesus Christ and love one another just as He commanded us. His namesake. In the name of Jesus. There is no other name under heaven or on earth. The name of Jesus. In the Bible, the name is the nature. The name speaks of the character. So receiving forgiveness for sin in the name of Jesus, well, that's the singular litmus test of the child of God. That's how you know. You know someone's a child of God, a true child of God, if they have received forgiveness of sin in the name of Jesus Christ. John wrote in his Gospel, chapter 1, verse 12, as many as received Him, to Him He gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are a family of children. You know what that means? It means we're all the same. Oh, we may have different roles and different ministries. We may have different gifts, callings, and anointings. But we're all just children of the family. We have one Father and one Lord who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we then are all simply His kids, His children. We're a family. And as we've talked about so many times, families are messy. Children get into skirmishes. They disagree. They fight. They tussle. Dad has to square them away, put them in a room and say, don't come out until you get along. I'm convinced he's going to do that with some of us in heaven. There's your vision for eternity. We're children. That means we're not always going to get it right. That means sometimes we're going to be selfish. I'm not saying that Jesus is saying be selfish like a child, but I'm saying we're children. This is a picture of us. We need our Father. You know, to play together well, we need to keep our eyes on the Father and on where the Father is taking us. We're children by faith in Jesus Christ. So family, a family of children. And then John breaks it down into two further subcategories of fathers next and then young men. Let's think about this. Again, not necessarily speaking of gender or of spiritual growth or maturity, but what these represent. Children representing the entire family. And then secondly, fathers. Fathers. He says in verse 13, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. 
Skip down to verse 14. I have written to you, fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. So he repeats himself. Almost word for word. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have known Him who has been from the beginning. Let me ask you this. What do fathers do? Or or maybe a better question is, what are fathers supposed to do? They care for the family. They look after the children. Fathers are the ones who take responsibility personally for others. In a family where we are all children, the, the father children would be the kids who are looking after the other kids. You know? Maybe in some of our family, it would be like Anna Marie who, who babysits sometimes Naomi and David. Now Naomi's 13, so she can keep an eye on David and me. She keeps an eye on the children, you know? <laughs> It's, it's the child who takes responsibility. The father is anyone in the family who takes responsibility for others in the family. Who's willing to do that? Hebrews 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Which I know is a verse that frightens Glenn. <laughs> He's going to have to account for the rest of y'all. Listen. We read verses like that and sometimes we think, oh, well, the leaders, obey the leaders. Listen, they're just those who have accepted the responsibility as children themselves of looking out for the other children. It's a fatherly type of role. But don't limit this to church leadership. We all can be fathers by nature in the family of children. We all can care for each other, look out for the others. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Isn't that a part of loving each other just as Christ has loved us? That if I truly love you like Jesus loved me, well then I'm going to have a fatherly sense in that I'm going to be looking out for, I'm going to be caring for you. And hoping that you're caring for me as well. To love each other. I mean, that, that's koinonia. Which is a major theme of First John, isn't it? Koinonia, community, taking on the responsibility one for another in this community. And and how do fathers do that? How do fathers care for the family? What do these father types look like? These are those, he says twice, who know Him who has been from the beginning. That's what makes a father. Who knows Him who has been from the beginning. Him who? And from the beginning of what? Who is he referring to here? Remember, first of all, that God is without beginning. Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And of Jesus, the Bible says, Micah 5, 2, His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So Jesus is without beginning. And yet, Jesus had a beginning. Now listen closely. This is actually very important theology. Jesus is without beginning. And Jesus had a beginning. That's wild. Do you know He is the only person in all of eternity that is both without beginning and having a beginning. You and I all had a beginning. We were not floating around in the minus land before we were born. We were not, you know, effervescent spirits, you know, until God brought us in and put us in body. We did not exist, the Bible is clear, until 
God gave us life. I believe at conception, by the way. But in that moment, God created life. That's when you began. So you have a beginning. I have a beginning. Jesus is from days of eternity. And yet, and yet, Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 says, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Jesus, who had no beginning, has a beginning. He who has been from the beginning doesn't speak of Jesus' existence, but of his incarnation. His beginning in this world, which truly is the beginning of the gospel. I like that's how Mark puts it. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he just calls it the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The beginning. There was that point in time where Jesus began to be human. Existing before that is God. But He has the beginning. He who has been from the beginning. Now listen, what does that mean as far as fathers are concerned? Why does He connect this to fathers? Because the best father wants their family to know Jesus the Christ. The best father focuses on the incarnation of God and the salvation of souls which comes through Jesus Christ. I have written to you fathers because you know Him who has been from the beginning. You don't know Him without sharing Him. That's what fathers do. Do you share Jesus with each other? Do you talk about what Jesus is doing in your life? What He has done in your life? Do you share with other children? If you do, that's a fatherly thing to do. I will say this also to fathers in families, more literally, the best thing you will ever do for your children is teach them about Jesus. More than any other thing, you can prepare them for life, send them out, give them an education, raise them up right... But if you don't teach them about Jesus, you have not given them a vision for eternity. And that's what fathers do. In children, in the family, so the family, and then such fathers produce, number three, the young men, or we'll call them fighters. Fighters. Family, fathers, and fighters. Again in verse 13, he says, I am writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. Fighters. Overcomers. The word is nikao. It means to conquer, to prevail. Those who prevail. The conqueror is the fighter. You know what's really cool about this? He says, I am writing to you young men, and I believe again a picture for those who overcome, for those who are willing to stand up like a young man and fight. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. He does not say, because Christ overcame the evil one in you. And that's interesting to me. He is crediting the church. He is crediting followers of Jesus themselves with having overcome the evil one. He's not talking about the victory on the cross. Now, understand, Christ's victory on the cross is the basis of all other victory. His conquering, His prevailing at Calvary allows me to prevail. But He is talking more specifically about fighters, John is here, who have themselves prevailed over the evil one. And He'll tell us how they did it in just a minute. So children, family, your sins are forgiven for His namesake. 
Fathers, you know Him who has been from the beginning, the incarnate Christ. Young men or fighters, you have overcome. And again, while this is all affirming, it's also enlightening because what John is talking about is this is what it looks like to walk in the light. Forgiven, knowing Jesus, and overcoming. That's walking in the light. If you know of your forgiveness, if you know Jesus, and you know you're overcoming, and you are continuing to overcome the evil one, you're walking in the light. That's how you know. Great affirmations. Beautiful revelations to us. But then all of a sudden, John changes his terminology. He goes from little children, fathers, young men, I am writing to you, suddenly in verse 13 at the end of the verse, to I have written to you, children. I have written to you, verse 14, fathers. I have written to you, young men. I am writing right now, he says. I have written, he says. I'm writing that you may know this. And I am writing because you already do. This is a complete work. This is John's way of saying done and done. And he's sitting there right then writing out these realities, these truths to the little children, the fathers, to the young men. That is family and fathers and fighters to the church. I'm writing to you because you know this stuff. And I have written to you because you know this. Perhaps he's talking about the Gospel. The Gospel of John that he had written. And in fact, if we lay this out just from a historical perspective, John probably first wrote his Gospel and then wrote the Revelation and then finally wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. That's probably the order that that these came. I've written to you, he says. Referring back to the Gospel, and something that's interesting in this is he he makes use of the word down in verse 14, abide, abide, which is minnow in the Greek. Now, get this, because it's really cool. John uses the word abide in the Gospel of John more than anywhere else in the entire New Testament. He uses the word the most. And if you look it up in a Strong's Concordance or something, you would find out minnow is used constantly by John. He's always talking about abiding. That's John's word. And he uses it right here, saying, I have written to you who abide. Abiding with Jesus. Walking in the light, we would say, as He is in the light. So he makes this shift. I'm writing to you, but I have written to you. And at the end of verse 13, he says, I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. Now, pause for a moment. Children should know their Father. How are we doing on that one? In this world. According to fatherhood.org, one out of three children in America live in fatherless homes. 47.6% of fatherless homes live below the poverty level. 90% of homeless and runaway kids come from fatherless homes. And while 92% of parents who are in prison are fathers, 85% of teenagers who are incarcerated for any reason are from homes without fathers. And it goes on and on and on and on. Years ago here at the, at the bridge, we did a men's study dealing with what, what was called the father wound. 
where fathers have actually wounded their children either by their behavior or by their absence, often by their absence. I have talked with so many people over the years who struggle with even knowing God as Father because they never knew their own Father. And maybe that's you. I remember one conversation with a brother, tough guy, strong man, biker. And he said to me, I just, I don't get God as a father. Because I never have one. I don't even know what to compare to. We live in a blind world where fatherhood is messed up. So many people walking in darkness. So many fathers who become absent because they themselves are sons of absent fathers. So many who have been hurt by a father rather than raised by a father who keeps pointing to Jesus, who knows Him who has been from the beginning. Listen, while many children don't have a father, haven't known a father, or what they've known of a father has not been good, make no mistake about it and don't be dismayed. We have a father in God. Well, I don't know what a father looks like. Look at Jesus. I'm not sure how a father acts. Look at God. Listen to what He says to you personally. And by the way, this this book of love letters is to be taken personally. Do you know that? When you read it, this is not stuff for others. It is for you. And we have a father. Psalm 68 verse 5. A father of the fatherless. And a judge for the widows is God in His holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. And what did Paul write? Romans 8.15 For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We have a Father. And you may not have a Father here on earth. Or you may have been mistreated by one. But you have the perfect Father in our God. Galatians 4.6 Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Which means so incredibly personally that we can cry out to God as Father in the same way Jesus did because the Spirit of Jesus is in us. Speaking through us. Calling out to Father. We have a Father in the Lord. I've written to you children because you know the Father. Not sure you know the Father? Spend a little time with the Father in the Word. Spend a little time with the Father in prayer. Ask God to reveal His fatherhood to you and you will be amazed at the love, the compassion, the tenderness, the Father of the fatherless. Verse 14, I have written to you fathers because you know Him who has been from the beginning. He says yet again, you know Him. In other words, Jesus Christ who is from the beginning is a household name in the family Spoken by fathers. And then back to fighters, he continues, I have written to you young men because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. And if you need a more concrete example of what it looks like to walk in the light, of what all of this looks like, get this. Jesus exemplifies all three of these. 
He's a son in the family. He showed us the submission of a child. What it looks like to be a child of God. Jesus says, if you're not sure, look at me. Luke 2.49 He said to his earthly parents, Mary and Joe, Why is it you're looking for me? Did you not know I had to be in my father's house? And then, Luke writes, he submitted to them and they headed on back home. Submission to the father, submission to his parents, submission. The picture of a child, a son in the family. Jesus said in John 5.19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. He's a Son in the family, but He's doing what the Father does, which means He's a Father to His followers. That is Jesus. He called His disciples again, little children, John thirteen thirty three. And Jesus as Himself a Father to all who follow after Him. He said in John 14, verse 7, If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on you know Him and have seen Him. He says in John 14, 9, He who has seen Me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? To this gentleman I talked to years ago who said, I don't know what a Father looks like. I finally said, look at Jesus. Because He who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. The perfect Father, your Father, you see in Jesus Christ. A son in the family, a father to his followers, and Jesus is a fighter. A fighter. Here's the deal about the fighter. I have written to you, young men, fighters, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. In Jesus always abided the Word of God. I know He is the Word of God. But the Word of God also abided within Jesus. And this is the key to overcoming the evil one in your life. As I said before, there's the overcoming of Calvary. The overcoming on the cross. That's huge. And that sets the table, if you will, for all other overcoming. But there is an overcoming in your life, in my life. There's an overcoming that we actually do ourselves and the key is the abiding Word of God. You want to overcome the evil one? Want to conquer sin in your life? Want to find yourself in a better place next year than you are this year or next week than you are today? The Word abiding makes you strong. The Word abiding makes you an overcomer and we see this in Jesus. See, Jesus didn't just memorize the Word so that He can go to a Bible bowl and win the trophy. Jesus didn't just speak the Word. He didn't just claim the Word or carry it around in a backpack. I got my Word. No, Jesus, as a young man, listen, was submitted to the Word. He knew the Word and He submitted to it. And that's the space that we find ourselves in as followers of Jesus. As children in the family, oftentimes, oh, we know the Word, we believe the Word, are we submitted to the Word? Are we living it out? You see, that's why Jesus showed us that beautiful picture of overcoming the enemy. Just listen to the story. This is Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, 
you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But He answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Jesus quotes it. He knows it. But get this, He was submitted to it. He didn't just quote the verse. He lived the verse. He did not turn the stones into bread. And He overcame the evil one. But the story goes on. The devil took Him into the holy city and had Him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to Him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to Him, On the other hand, it is also written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And Jesus quoted it and submitted to it. He did not put the Lord his God to the test. That's the abiding word. He overcame the temptation of the evil one. But it wasn't just ended there. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus quoted it and he submitted to it. And the devil left him. And behold, the angels came and began to minister to him. And that's the key. God's Word was the standard of living for Jesus, though He was the Word. See, that makes it even more impressive to me. People who say, well, it was easy for Jesus to keep the Word because He was the Word. Yeah, and being the Word, you'd think He'd have a little license to do whatever He wanted because, hey, He's the Word, so if He does it, that's what the Word does. thing is, Jesus submitted to the Word of God all the way to Calvary. That's what fighters do. That's how you overcome sin on a day-to-day basis. You don't just know the Word, you submit to the Word. You do what the Word says. You're not a hearer of the Word, you're a doer. And that's not easy in this culture because there are many things this Word says that run absolutely counter to the culture in which we live. Ah, yeah, but we've got to be more tolerant, Rick. We've got to be more understanding. We've got to be more inclusive. I will include anyone who follows this word. I will do anything that this word calls for. A doer of the word, submitted to the word. And by the way, this ultimately played out not just on the Mount of Temptation, there in the wilderness. It didn't just play out through Jesus' ministry. It played out to the very end in Jesus. His ultimate victory came by submission. Get this, to the Word. His crucifixion was submission to the Word of God. Well, how so? Psalm 22.16, a thousand years earlier, had said, Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Jesus submitted to that. Isaiah 22.23 says, I will drive him like a peg in a firm place and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. I'm going to drive him like a peg and Jesus submitted to that. Or how about Mark 14.27 where Jesus, quoting Zechariah 13 verse 7 said, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will become scattered and Jesus submitted to the striking down. The Word of God. Jesus did it. 
submitted to it. You could add in Genesis 3.15, Isaiah 53, Daniel 9.24. You could add in so many verses that speak of the impending crucifixion of the Christ and leading all the way up to that. Jesus knew the Word, but He submitted to the Word, and that's why He has victory. And that's what a fighter does. That's what we're called to. That is the affirmation that John is making right here. Here's how you become a fighter. Here's how you overcome the evil one. You do the Word. You just do the Word. Some might say, well, to the exclusion of His Spirit? No! No, empowered by His Spirit. And knowing that Jesus is Himself the Word incarnate, yes, but it's accepting the Scriptures as our absolute moral code, what God says goes, even should the whole entire world reject it. Can you say that? Are you standing on His Word as your standard for life and behavior? How can a young man, speaking of young men, keep his way pure? Psalm 119 verse 9, by keeping it according to your Word. Or again, David writes, Psalm 119, verse 98, Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. And we see that played out in the life of Jesus Himself, a son in the family, a father and a fighter, whose greatest victory, whose greatest overcoming, came by complete submission to the will and the word, the word of God. Don't you just love Him? Don't you just love Jesus? Who not only tells us these things, but exemplifies them so we know what it looks like. So we know how to walk it out. I just love Jesus. And so John writes, verse 15, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He's talking about this materialistic world system in which we live. And he says if you love it, if you're living for it, for one thing, you're blinding yourself. You're walking in darkness. If it's about this world, it's about what you can achieve in this world, or or more so, what John's really talking about here, if it's about what you can gain in this world. If you gain the whole world, but lose your soul... Do not love this world or the things in this world. Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now please understand, there's been debate about this, but the context is very clear. The love of the Father is not in him does not mean the Father doesn't love him. It means he doesn't love God. If I love this world, then I don't love the Father. I can't say I love the Father if I'm loving this world. It's one or the other. Why? Why can't I love the world and love God? A lot of people claim to. John says you can't do it. The two are incompatible. In fact, that's what Jesus taught. He said in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters. 
Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And I think that's what's on John's mind here when he talks about the world. Look at this, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. First of all, note this is not from the Father. He won't use these things to influence our faith. He won't use the cravings, the desires, the lust of the world to influence faith. We will sometimes. Boy, this hit me hard. God will not use the things of the world to draw people, to attract people to Him. But we do it in the church all the time. We use the comforts of the world. We use the entertainment of the world. We use the style of the world. We use the techniques of the world. God won't do that. He doesn't use the world to draw people to Him. To influence how we follow after Him. And John here, he defines loving the world as, again, the lust, or literally the craving, the desire of the flesh. And then he further subdivides that into the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. What does that mean? Get this, the lust of the eyes is covetousness. That's what the word describes, coveting, desiring, something I don't have, I want that. I see that and I want it. It's like we have this Honda Odyssey. Cheryl and I do. We got it several years ago. And uh, and it's running great. It's in good shape. Trucking along. It's got a few miles on it, but man, it's doing great. It's big and bulky, which I like because if someone hits Cheryl, at least there's something around her, unlike my little Kia. So we got this this nice van, right? So then my, my daughter, my little girl, Hannah, she and Josiah bought a brand new Honda Odyssey. Man, it's cool. It's really cool. It's got stuff ours doesn't have. We looked at it and immediately we're thinking, should we trade ours in? It's like our iPhones. You know, a new one's coming out this year. It's covetousness. I don't have it. I want it. And the flesh does that with everything. And I'm being silly here, but there are things that, man, we just the desires, the lust of the flesh. We want, we want. And the more we want, and the more we feed that, the less the love of the Father is in us. Our vision is for this life and not for eternity. Don't love like that. The lust of the eyes. And then he says, get this, the boastful pride of life. You know what that is? The word life is bios. It's where we get uh, biography, biology, bio, you know, that we use the word bio in, in things pertaining to life. But in the Greek, bios most literally refers to resources, wealth, and goods. What does that mean? Well, what John's saying here is the lust and craving of the flesh. It's divided into covetousness, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. We would call that the pride of ownership. I covet, and then I get it, and I go, yeah. (laughs) Did you see the new Odyssey drive into the parking lot? Huh? Yeah. Pride of ownership. What John is getting at is something that has been blinding the eyes since Eve saw the fruit. 
Genesis 3.6, when the woman saw the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave it also to her husband with her and he ate. Well, of course he did. He was an idiot. This is the smoky haze. My friends, this is the problem. This is what clouds our vision for eternity. It's craving what cannot last rather than loving the eternal God. And that's why this whole section, he begins with these great affirmations. Little children, your sins have been forgiven. Fathers, you know Him who has been from the beginning. Young men, you've overcome the evil one. This is good. This is walking in the light. Don't do it the other way. Don't do it the way the world does it. All of these things that we crave and desire and want and covet, and then when we get it, we take pride in it. All of this is passing away. It cannot last. I love what Alexander McLaren says about these things. He says, let us lay a handful of snow on our fevered foreheads and cool our desires. (laughs) Chill out, man. Verse 17, the world is passing away and also its lusts. Family, fathers, fighters, this world system is fading. It's fading away. It will not, it cannot last. Remember what he said back at the end of verse 8? Look back at there, chapter 2, verse 8. He said, the darkness is passing away. Same phrase, passing away. The darkness is passing away. The true light is already shining. It has been since the beginning. The light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ is shining. The smoke that settled over western Washington last week is back. As I said, it's settling. It's trying to come back in for a return. You know what the good news is? It can't last. All we need is a nice marine push to come rushing in and all the smoke is going to get blown away and it's going to dissipate and it will disappear. And Isaiah 29 verse 18 says, On that day the deaf will hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Finally see. Jesus said, John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and has not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. Do you have a vision for eternal life? John says in verse 17, the one who does the will of God lives forever. A vision that comes of Jesus. Lord, thank You for Your Word because in it You give us a vision for eternal life. Father, keep our eyes open and may we live this way, looking to eternity, walking in the light as You, Lord Jesus, are Yourself in the light. In Jesus' name, Amen. Maybe you've been living in darkness. Maybe you've been walking in the haze. And it may simply be that this week has been so distracting and so impacting that you haven't even thought about Jesus. Well, let's pause and think about Him right now. If you want to just talk to Him, you can do that while we're singing this song. You can stand there or sit there and just talk to Him. You don't even need to sing. Someone else will do it. Or if you want to pray, 
if you have some need, some hurt, something that is clouding your vision of eternity, come forward. Let's pray together. Or if you don't have a vision for eternity at all because you've never believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, won't you come forward and open your eyes today to the truth of Jesus? Let's stand and sing together. Come forward. We'll have people at all four tables.